There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I love him because he's wonderful. Because he's just my man. He's just my Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane Gregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. On this week's episode, in honor of Mother's Day, we have a special guest, Lane's son, Tucker, who joined us for this recording while he was home on spring break. Tucker's a theater major at Northwestern University and a crazy talented young man who probably inherited some of his creative genius from mom and dad, who is a gifted musician. It's Dan DeGregory's music that introduces and closes this podcast. Tucker and Lane share a love of storytelling, and we thought it would be interesting to discuss how mother and son have drawn inspiration from each other over the years. So today's topic, a family of storytellers. Tucker, I want to take you back. And when when did you even realize that your mom was a journalist, what she did for a living? Our Dinner conversations always revolved around her stories, um, so I can remember distinctly coming from home from school and immediately hearing about her subjects and about what topics she was working on with uh, at the paper. Um, and even conversations in the car always revolved around: Can you help me clarify this story? Can you help me like find a new perspective? Can you help me think about how to characterize these people? Um, so our conversations kind of on the daily revolved around. Was that like when you were five? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean even going to preschool, and then I think. Talking about her role as a journalist um, and being a, a news reporter, too, came out um, around 9-11. I remember having conversations after that saying, even though I'm, I'm a human interest writer now, primarily, I was one of these people back in the day, you know, who spent the time kind of out on the front lines, like going to cover news like this. So that was an interesting wake up call for myself when I was three or four, I guess, at that point. So, yeah, all the way back to preschool, we were having conversations about it. And you guys, uh, you were telling funny stories about, so mom's reading children's books and you guys are dissecting narrative arcs and uh, trying to figure out characters' motivations and things like that. Yeah. Go ahead. We used to drive his brother crazy because he just wanted to get on with the story and Tucker and I would stop and talk about why this character did this or what they were thinking at that period in time. And he and I were very into the backstories of things and uh, his brother was like, just turn the damn page. <laughs> So what what led you to theater? Did any did that inspire any of your interest in the theater? I def yeah I think so. I I feel like my involvement as a dancer um, was what ultimately got me into theater. But 
even with dance, like finding storytelling through physicality and narrative through dance was what excited me most and not just necessarily the spectacle aspect. Um, and then finding theater, we had lots of conversations, like even in the first play I was in was A Doll's House at the Oslo and lots of conversations around crafting that narrative as a really unimportant character as like the child that runs on for five minutes but like what is the purpose of that how is that serving the storyline and of course she made me read the full text even though I was eight years old and didn't need to know the full plot line she wanted to make sure that I was super super aware of, of my role in that play so yeah the conversations that definitely revolved around um, the narrative aspect of what I was doing on stage were you trying to raise a storyteller is that your goal <laughs> I think everybody needs to be a storyteller <laughs> he Tucker just took to it early on. He 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 and I would well we would all have car trips, but the, my other son didn't participate. We would like look at people in the cars as they drove by and try to make up their backstory, like who were they, where were they going, just crafting ma- random made up stories for people has always been something we've shared. And I can remember listening to audiobooks or also listening to CDs in the car and like talking about the story through the lyrics. Like it was never a matter of oh we're having a good time enjoying the music. It was always some type of analysis. Um, so that was that was definitely very very true to my childhood. Yeah. So what now? Now when you guys are thinking about the theater and you, when you're thinking specifically about shows, I guess that you're participating in. So how, where are the parallels and what's what's the same and what's different? A lot of what I do as an actor and as a choreographer, as far as the research, the background information I need to collect, um, seems to be similar to what she does as a reporter. Um, like we have multiple conversations on the phone from over a thousand miles away from Chicago, where I'm calling. Um, and I call her and say, like, how exactly do I get into this headspace? How do I almost research a character like you would report one? What type of questions would I ask if I were interviewing my own character? Um, and we talked a lot about, like, four different areas um, of acting research uh, that performers do, which is experience, improvisation, imagination, observation. And I think we discovered that observation was the strongest um, as far as how it's similar between our, our professions, our, our passions. Um, so I try to pull from similar things that she's doing as a reporter as far as being really astute, looking at details um, and physicality of, of people that I encounter, using that as inspiration for characters, um, doing dramaturgical work, so looking at like the context of the world, um, the characterization and the relationships that people are building, and using that um, all to kind of fuel my character work. And that's what you, so mom comes home all the time talking about Elmer Wright or whoever the character might be and you guys are talking about um, you know what's his backstory what's he like Uh, you're having all those kind of conversations yeah absolutely she was always really transparent about the story she was writing even from a young age she I think thought of the stories that she was writing as cautionary tales so she would be really really adamant about making sure we knew what prostitution was and what sex offenders you know who sex offenders were and and the, the different types of worlds that were beyond what I was growing up in and I think that also led me to not only understand her stories more and her subjects more but also be interested in trying to embody different characters that were who were not at all close to to home I love how you talk about because I've, I've read some of the Tucker writings too so I love how you talk about how your mom's you know habit of she just didn't want to make judgments about people and taught you guys to ask a lot of questions and not make assumptions and so it sounds like you're doing the same thing now when you sort of you think through a character and you're trying to do the same thing you're trying to figure out what this person's really about and bring some nuance to it. Absolutely. Um, and I think naturally a lot of the characters that we're working with in my acting classes and in the shows we're doing on campus 
um, are really distant, different from who we are and distant from our own lives um, and quick, easily judgeable. And my professor is quick to stop us and say, if you make judgment, the audience has no possibility of uh being empathetic to them or being not judgmental. Um, so I think approaching it from that standpoint is really, really important. So Lane, has it been like, so this is cool for you, having somebody who... I can't stop smiling. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, mean, not, not, I don't mean this podcast with Tucker, but I mean like watching Tucker grow up. And I mean, it's cool for me. I watched him on Facebook. But like watching him grow up and sort of embrace this role and then you guys have this thing in common where you can talk about this and um, talk about the story, really, right? Absolutely. And and character, I think, has been a big part for both of us. Like, I've always tried to figure out, you know, what's going on in my character's head, whether I have to interview them to ask that or just imagine that mindset might be so that I c- it will provide some truth to, to my writing. I think Tucker's very passionate about that in terms of, like, who is this character I'm playing right now? Not just reading the lines, but where did they come from? How did they get to this place? How would they react in a certain place? And, and he does a lot of work building that character. Um, I hadn't thought about the physical aspects of it as much. I don't really pay much attention to that. But Tucker's a very physical actor, which comes, I think, from his dancing background. And so I, I think I learned to pay a lot more attention to the way people move and gesture and, and things like that as they navigate the world through watching Tucker. And what it says about them. I Absolutely. Guess. Sort of how they, yeah. All right. So, and you guys, what are your parallels? You, what, when you think about the theater and journalism from your perspective, what are, what are the parallels? I mean, at the the most bottom line, it's the same thing, right? It's telling a story about strangers to convey something to an audience of other strangers. So he he gets the, I don't know if it's the benefit or the uh, the detriment of having a, a live in-person reaction, whereas, you know, we have, we don't get that. We're, we're writing in a bubble and not seeing anybody react till after the product is already finished. But I think the, the act of gathering the information and figuring out how to tell the story is very similar. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about the parallels between uh, our responsibility to be honest as artists and like our the, the, the fact that our entire intention as a writer and as an actor or choreographer or theater artist is to tell an honest and convincing story and the rhetorical strategies that we use on stage or, vers- or in our writing to convince audiences of something, to convey an argument. I think those are really, really in line. One, one of the... Um plays that Tucker was in in high school was the Laramie Project. And I think that was when we really started talking about these parallels because that story is about um, Matthew Shepard who got killed because he was gay. And it was made, well, you can explain that better than I did, how it was made by exactly with the process of what we do to interview people. There's this fairly new genre of theater called docudramas. Um, and it's actually seen in film too and in, in some novels too. But so the idea of a docudrama is the playwright, in this case, Moises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Project, um, and they go and collect a set of interviews across a period of time and then create the dialogue solely from those interviews. Um, and sometimes they craft characters around multiple different people, um, but it's it's all based on the, the actual dialogue that they've collected and the, the research that they've done in that set area. So with the Laramie Project, Boises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Project went to Wyoming um, for a period of a few, I think it was across three or four months, and they did interviews with tons and tons of people um, and then created this two-and-a-half-hour-long play based on on that dialogue. Um, and it's amazing. I think we've had conversations about this, but just how strong humans are naturally as storytellers, like with the fact that we have an innate desire and capability to storytell um, and that we could create a full play off of 
dialogue with very, very little editing um, and very little word that language that varies from uh, what was actually said by the locals in, in this area in Wyoming. Um, so that's pretty impressive. But and almost no action. I mean, all the actions happened in the past, kind right. of like in journalism, what you come to a lot of times, you come to a story after the things have already happened. So how can you reconstruct as well as put into context? And then that play did a great job, which is also something I want to do in my stories is pushing it forward the next level. And then now what? Now what are we going to do about it? You know. So that was the first show that I directed in high school. And it was important for me to talk to you about how to approach that on campus, um, especially because I was so impressed by the, well that, the way that Moises Kaufman and his team um, conducted a lot of journalism uh, to make the, make the project happen. So there were all these... Uh... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Video recordings that they ended up making a documentary on um, and a movie based around the reporting process and kind of watching him go from person to person to point A to point B across this small community in Wyoming and, and kind of dig deeper into investigative journalism. Um, and I remember talking to you about how I could apply that on campus and use that uh, to kind of make it more relevant and interview teachers and students um, and people in my cast and see like what was a similar practice I could conduct in the rehearsal room um, that Moises had done when he was reporting for the project originally. Don't know. Did he? He he wasn't a journalist originally. The the guy who wrote the Laramie Project. I'm not sure if Moises was. Okay, but I mean I, that was so well documented too. I assume he had, you know, factual information. I mean, research that he could pick up from what the story had been covered. Right, yeah. and uh, in the movie version, they show uh, a reenactment of the re- the reporting process, and he goes to find court files, and he goes to talk to judges, and he talks to the medical mm-hmm. professionals. Um, and actually, the majority of Moises Kaufman's plays are docudramas. So he also has one called Gross Indecencies based on the trials of Oscar Wilde. Um, so he is like this playwright at the forefront of this genre, kind of combining journalism with theater. And you guys had found some connections, right, with playwrights who were journalists. So you, Yeah, we were talking last night. Um, Tucker's very, in, especially into musical theater. And I said, hey, the, the very first American musical that was ever produced was Showboat. And that was written by Edna Ferber, who was a journalist at in Milwaukee. Is that right? We looked it up. Because yeah. he wasn't sure. And I kept saying, no, no, all these other people. So talk a little bit about what we found out. But it, it's, it was kind of amazing to me. Yeah, through our research, we were finding out that like the three um, most prominent American playwrights of the 20th century, um, being Tennessee Williams and being Arthur Miller and Eugene O'Neill, were all journalists at one point, uh, to varying degrees. But they all started with um, different jobs as writers and reporters for newspapers. 
Which you can see why, in a way, it translates pretty well, Absolutely. I would say. We didn't find any that went the other way. <laughs> <laughs> so you're putting on a performance. You're doing all those things that you're trying to do with your stories, too. You're building character, and you're trying to get the audience to follow along, and you're trying to find that moment. You know, you're putting them in a place, in a moment in time. Of course, like Hamilton, right? That life coming, <laughs> life imitating art, art imitating life, whichever way it is, um, and back and forth again. So, I mean, like, that must be fun, too. When you watch Tucker perform, it's like putting, it's all the things in your head are naturally getting in oh yeah absolutely absolutely and and i think learning enough like the, one of the things i really like about watching him on stage or watching an east stage play is like how how little you can give the audience at the beginning to make them want more and this idea of like not getting the opposite of the inverted pyramid right not giving all the good stuff all the important information at first so you give them these little teases or like a little cliffhanger of some kind just enough and then you if once you can hold them you can go back as far as you want to go you know to tell the other information Um, but I, i think i've paid more attention to that since i've been watching your plays so and so these conversations that go back and forth what is that like when you got when so Tucker's working on a play and you're working on a story when you guys still sort of picking each other's brain oh yeah and I'm I'm so happy it hasn't stopped when you moved away because he and I are both very much night owls and so our conversations in school time were usually you know 11 12 1 o'clock in the morning when and when my husband and his brother were asleep that was our time but it's kind of still become that I mean even though he's at school he's an hour behind me so he'll call me at 1 in the morning 2 in the morning and we'll talk and it usually start, starts out talking about what you're doing in your plays but he always runs it back to like well, what's up with your story you know what's going on with your people and and I think it's really easy for us to find parallels between stories that you're doing now about people modern day and the stories that have been told for hundreds of years that I'm exploring in a lot of my, I mean, a lot of what I'm doing in acting class is about modern day new work, but also of course the classics and finding parallels between those seems to be really natural. That's fun that you guys still do that. You still uh, it's break a tr- it down. It's a treat. I mean, I there's not a part of me that was disappointed that my children did not go into journalism, but I'm so glad that I have something I can connect with what he's chosen for his profession as well. Especially these days, you're thinking now. They have to move in with him one day. like it's not like the theater is a, is a safe bet either. But uh, yeah, theater's uh, been around longer than newspapers. It'll <laughs> still be around. Um, what do you, what are some of the ones? What are the, some of the shows that you guys, aside from the Laramie Project, which we talked about? What, what are some of the shows that you guys have really connected on and felt like, you know, they were just great stories come to life. I think one of the ones I enjoyed most was I Hate Hamlet. Um, and maybe because I love the writer of that that play, Paul Rudnick, is a New Yorker writer who I've been following for years as a writer. He's like a fabulous writer. And this is his first play, I believe. And not only was it hilarious, but it kind of it put things in this, this intergenerational context, which was so interesting. And Tucker got to play an old drunk man. And so that was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> But talk a little bit about that, because that, that story was, it was multi-layered in terms of the context of it. And Tucker's like, well, yeah, mom's written about old drunk guys many times, so I will, I got yeah, this. I got this. Right, right, right. Um, no, that story is about um, a young actor, a modern day actor, who moves to New York um, and is given the opportunity to play Hamlet in Central Park in a production. Um, he's really resistant to it. He, he's originally a TV actor and he doesn't want to do anything on the stage. And he ends up renting um, the apartment that John Barrymore owned when he was playing Hamlet uh, generations before. And the ghost of John Barrymore, who I was portraying, um, haunts this young actor and basically convinces him that Hamlet is the best role that you that any actor could ask for. 
Um, it's a really debaucherous play. It's really, really, really fun. Lots of great comedy. Um, but yeah, very multi-layered and very interesting as far as the intergenerational conversation. So what, you know, if your mom were to write a play, what do you think? What what could it be? I, well, of course, I still like Romeo and Julio. Right, I, right. I think oh, that is a great... Oh, don't give that away now. Shh. Shh. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, that is a good play. We... That's been our idea for a long, long time. <laughs> She's talked a lot about writing a musical adaptation of Princess Bride. That's a conversation we've had. There you go. That would be, you could pull that off. That yeah, was pretty, yeah, yeah. I inundated Tucker with Princess Bride when he was growing up, and especially the idea of it being a story within a story. Very meta. Yeah, yeah, Very it meta. is. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so what's been your favorite performance, Lane, watching Tucker grow up? Mm, well, I think the very first one blew me away because he was in, were you in sixth grade? And they did Guys and Dolls? Mm. Yes, yeah, seventh grade was Guys and Dolls. We did Millie, sixth grade. Okay, and but he, I think Guys and Dolls was when you were because li- he was so little and he was playing this like Marlon Brando, Sky Masterson role. But watching him t- sort of inhabit a role, right? Just <laughs> watching him transform himself as a, even a little guy, you know, like even a twelve-year-old, and be able to. He also choreographed that show, which is one of the first ones you choreographed too. And I still don't know how you do that. I have no idea how you can just come up with movement for a cast of forty. 12-year-olds who can't dance and, and pull that all off, you know, but pulling them into the story through their movement and dance, too, even the kids that weren't acting were in the ensemble there, and that was pretty cool to watch him command that. You know, I would, I, just listening to you guys talk, I can imagine, like, you know, so growing up, your mom's coming home and talking about all these people that she's writing about, and if you're not holding back, and <laughs> you're telling them, like, because you, you like people with lots of warts and problems and things, and so you're coming home and you're like... And that must sort of fuel your, I mean, you know, your love of character, like that the most interesting people sometimes are flawed and, and, you know, that it's, and then like you said, then you're going to move into the theater and then you're going to try to inhabit some of these folks and try to understand their motivations. That must have been actually a pretty good, pretty good grounding. Well, it's interesting because I think one of the things that drew me to theater as a, as a little kid, and I think probably you too, as well as most people, is the spectacle aspect of it and this kind of refined, beautiful, exciting um, eye candy. And what I've been learning a lot about in school now, especially with my choreography, is the antithesis of that. And like, especially with my chore- choreographing, um, a lot of my professors are like, you choreograph really well for marginalized emotions. And I sat back and thought, what a coincidence. Yeah, so I remember calling you and saying, my choreography professor just said I choreographed for marginalized emotions. And that was like a a, a really strong light bulb moment for both of us, saying like, that's something that I grew up with, that's something that I'm inspired by, that I didn't know I was inspired by, but kind of falling back to that side of of storytelling, um, which is so different from the spectacle aspect. And I think, too, I remember even when you guys were little kids, there was one week where I went to interview homeless people living in tents downtown, and then the next day I was interviewing a gubernatorial candidate, you know, and this idea of, like, reminding you guys that we're so in the middle. You know, I think a lot of people want their kids only to look up, like, to see the good stuff, you know, look how things could be better, or, or don't let them know that there's people hurting out there in the world. And I think we were very cognizant in our family of, like, there's a lot of people a lot worse off than we are, a lot of people dealing with things that you don't know what they're dealing with that put them in that position, which is a lot of the character development as well, because not everybody you play is going to be Prince Charming, you know? And I think as a writer, just like as a choreographer, um, you make an active choice to either follow a more formalist side of it or a more expressionist side of it. 
And I've been so excited to dive into expressionism in school and, and with my work um, and kind of making all of my choices around narrative arc and around telling a story and building character rather than around the spectacle or around having a clean cut, perfectly organized story. I think that's something we had multiple conversations around the dinner table about too. Like what is driving our art and what is going to be the thing that's initiating the product rather than it being product based. And and learning how to embrace ambiguity. Sometimes there's no black and white, you know, sometimes you gotta live in that gray part and, right. and revel in it. It's cool, isn't it, to hear him talking this way? Like like I would think for you to hear him talking oh about gosh, all this yes. stuff that he's sort of taken it obviously been infused by your conversations together and probably like listening to your mom's stories growing up Absolutely. too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We should write a play together. We should. Let's yeah. get on it. <laughs> All right, before we close off this podcast, we have a burning question that we have to ask Tucker, So, and that I'm sure a lot of readers probably want to know, and, and the question is, how's Bobo? Bobo's great. Bobo's actually still in my apartment at college. Yeah, he's still there. Still he's going. Still there. He's in good condition after all the sewing, all the, all yeah, the we, fixes. We re Bobo's stuffed, Tucker's stuffed elephant that I wrote about, my very first first-person story ever, and we sewed his nose back together about a dozen times. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, if you have questions for Lane about any of her stories, if you want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.